0: Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm really excited today to be speaking to Dr. Jordan Frith about his book titled Barcode. It's just come out from Bloomsbury in 2023 as part of the Object Lessons series, which are short, beautifully designed books about the hidden lives of ordinary things. This one obviously is about barcodes, which are all over the place. We use them pretty much every day, and we probably don't ever think about them. Thankfully, Jordan has thought about them and is here to tell us all about it. So Jordan, thank you so much for being with us to tell us about the barcode.
1: Well, thank you for having me, and I'm really excited to talk with you about this.
0: I am too. But before we get into all things barcode, can you please introduce yourself and explain why you decided to write this book?
1: Sure. So I am the Pierce Professor of Professional Communication at Clemson University. Um, And I decided to write this book because of kind of some random serendipitous things happening. So I mostly am a mobile media researcher and I especially earlier in my career, like dissertation and the first like maybe six, eight years of my career studied mobile applications, which I still do, but mostly focused on like emerging, like flashy, cool new media. Like I have a book on VR. I have a book on smartphones as locative media. I wrote my dissertation on the app Foursquare in 2012, which I don't know if anyone remembers, but it was cool for a little while. Um, And over the years, I've kind of transitioned to becoming more and more interested in infrastructure. So kind of more focusing on all of the invisible things that we tend not to think about that shape our lives in really important ways. So, for example, rather than studying mobile phones and like mobile applications, I've begun studying like mobile networks and all like the back end stuff that makes our mobile communication possible. And that extended into studying forms of mobile media and infrastructure about data and data infrastructures. And I wrote a book on radio frequency identification for MIT Press, and that came out in 2019. And that's kind of this like cool, powerful, new emerging like auto ID technology. But as I was writing that book, for all the hype about RFID technology, I realized like, None of that was even remotely as important or as successful as barcodes, right? Because barcodes, they are one of the most successful technologies of all time. And for a little bit of context, I'm a 40-year-old. So I've never shopped without barcodes. Like I've never, until I like sat down to start writing this book, I've never even imagined a world without barcodes, like how you went to a grocery store, how you receive packages or anything like that. So as I finished my RFID book, I was like, you know what? I want to write something about barcodes. And the way I started was I figured I might be able to write like an article or two. Because I couldn't imagine there was that much about barcodes. I mean, they're just barcodes. They're just this thing that we, if you're a certain age, you just grew up with and they were everywhere. They're how I board a plane, how I get into punk shows back when I was cool and used to go to a lot of shows. They're just everywhere. And so I started thinking I could like write an article. And as I dove more into the history, I found that there was more than enough for a book. And not only was there more than enough for a book, There was more than enough to write like a really engaging fun book about kind of the history of the barcode and revealing like all the way it shaped our world and all the weird, interesting things about it that have been kind of lost to history as it's become completely taken for granted. And as a side note, it was always my dream to write an object lessons book um, because those are my favorite books. And this was kind of my shot at doing it. So... That's how I got started on barcodes. I ended up finding out that there is an archive of barcode history at Stony Brook University, which shocked me. I had never imagined anyone would have an archive of barcode history. So I spent a week doing research there. And yeah, I ended up going from thinking I could maybe squeeze an article about and be like, hey, barcodes are cool, to writing this book and by the end, having to make a ton of tough decisions of what to cut because these books aren't that long, because I found so much that interested me. And really over the process, like I kind of fell in love with barcodes um, and all of their cultural importance and just really focusing on kind of the mundane. I've just become more interested in the mundane and how it shapes our lives and how we don't notice it and that making the argument that not noticing it and looking at these technologies we think of as, as boring, that becoming boring is maybe the ultimate praise you can give to the ultimate success of a technology. It's really, really hard to become boring, to become so successful that we don't think about it.
0: And that's exactly why I can see how you wanted uh, to have an object lessons book. That's exactly the kind of thing that they seem to do and that we love reading about and talking about. So wonderful introduction into all things barcode. Before we go further, though, I think we do need to make sure we know what we're talking about, which seems like an odd thing to have to clarify, given how much we use them. But how many kinds of barcodes are there and what are the main types and categories?
1: So that's a great question. And that was something I mean, I had never thought of before I started doing this research either. Um, So. Ultimately, like there are two broad types of barcodes. There are what's called linear barcodes, where the data is read in one direction. And that's the barcode that anyone listening to this would recognize if you've been grocery shopping, if you've received a package, if like you buy anything at a retail store. They're the black lines, like. That have the numbers under them that contain the data. Those are linear barcodes, means they're read in one direction. There are also more advanced barcodes um, called 2D barcodes that I'll talk about more later. But they're square and they can like kind of be read in different directions, so they can contain more data. But even for linear barcodes, there are more types than I could possibly like list here, or more types than I know. Like I came across a book that had like a collection of something like 300 barcode symbols. So the most famous one, the one that is immediately recognizable is the UPC barcode or EAN if you're in Europe. But then there are longer versions of that, like code 39, code 128. There's shorter, shorter versions. Like my book has an ISBN 10 barcode. And most of these linear barcodes, they relatively look the same, but the design is slightly different in that the number patterning is different and the number of lines are different. But yeah, there are so many types of barcodes that ultimately like do basically the same thing and it's a difference of like data storage and capture and also data difference of standards, but then the two main categories are just linear, which are the black lines everyone's used to, and like the square 2D barcodes. Those are the two main types.
0: So I'm glad you covered my next question in the book, because honestly, I have wondered about this for a really long time and always kind of thought it might be a dumb question. Um, But you talked about it in the book, so clearly it's not a dumb question. How do barcodes actually work?
1: So yeah, I agree. It is not at all a dumb question, because it is also a question that until I started doing this research, I had never once thought about. It all just was kind of like magic. Like if I'm in self-checkout line or if I'm going to a show with a ticket with a barcode, it just gets scanned and something happens, right? I've never thought about it. Um, But the way they actually work is pretty interesting. So to just use like UPC or EAM barcodes as an example, and most linear barcodes work on this principle, is a UPC barcode is 15 sets, 15 pairs of black lines, and of those 15 pairs 12 of those pairs contain data and then there's also three pairs if you like look at one the longer ones on the left middle and right those are just guard bars for the scanners those don't really matter but the other 15 pair the other 12 pairs each contain a number and the way the numbers like determined is basically through a binary process where a scanner looks and it's looking for is there black ink or is there white space and so two a black line next to a black line will represent a 6 based on like the width of each of those lines and the space between those lines right and every 6 is determined by a standards body and so every 6 is the exact same like pairing of two different black lines of varying width, right? And varying space. And that goes from zero to nine. So the way a scanner reads a barcode is it just looks for those two pairs. A pair of fours, for example, has a certain width for each black line, a pair of three has a separate width, and it just decodes that through a binary process and pulls the numbers out of it. So for a UPC barcode, all it contains is 12 digits, which are written underneath it, but the it's just written underneath it in case the barcode tears. But each pair, each of those 12 pairs of lines just dictates a number, which is set by a standards body, which is read automatically. And then that is fed into a database system where it pulls up the record. So there's nothing in the barcode about most barcodes about prices or expiration dates or anything like that. It's purely an identification number based on like the patterning of lines. And as a sign, I probably got like way too into my research and ended up learnt- liking barcodes too much. You can actually train yourself to read those lines if you try okay, really hard. This. Yeah, you can. Um, I mean, I could do it with like, a resource thing next to me. I couldn't do it off the top of my head. But yeah, they're always the same. So you can train yourself to look at a barcode and be like, well, that width of that black line and then that much space and then that thin black line is this number. A human, ostensibly, if they had too much time on their hands, could train themselves to read the barcodes, like just based on the width of the lines. So ultimately, it's just patterns of lines and spaces grouped into pairs and each of those pairs represents a number from zero to nine. Like that's ultimately all that it is. And it's had just a major impact on everything just through that kind of like binary process of decoding, um, whether what it's looking at is black or white.
0: Hmm. All right. Before I get too dragged into the idea of being able to read barcodes myself, we will move on. Um, I'd love to... Ask, you mentioned earlier um, RFID tags and all sorts of other kind of things in the automatic identification and data capture category that can do a lot more than a barcode. They can hold a lot more data. But you already mentioned kind of, well, but barcodes are the ones that win. Barcodes are the ones that have magically become things we don't even notice. What benefits do barcodes have over more powerful things within their own category?
1: So, Yeah. I think that's a really good question. And it's something I grappled with a lot in my work because one of the most interesting things to me about barcodes is the first UPC barcode was scanned in 1974 on June 26th at a grocery store in Troy, Ohio. Um, and then in Europe, it was a couple years later, it went through a similar process. and. It's amazing to me that that first UPC barcode, um, which was on a pack of gum, which is now in the Smithsonian in Washington, is essentially the same exact barcode that you would scan at a grocery store today. It is a 50-year-old technology that more or less has remained completely unchanged as everything else has changed around it. Like, it really hasn't changed. Um, and in that time, we've come up with much more advanced identification processes for items, um, RFID probably being the most famous, which can contain way more data and can be read like wirelessly. But part of the reason that barcodes have endured for 50 years and not that many technologies managed to endure for 50 years and still be more successful than they ever are, like 6 billion barcodes are scanned every single day now, is Partly because of their simplicity, Um, barcodes were designed from the very start to be relatively simple. So, Like I mentioned, UPC barcodes, EAM barcodes, um, most linear barcodes, they don't really contain much data. All they contain for the most part is a string of numbers just used to identify an object, and all the data is stored elsewhere. In like a back-end digital database. So like there's just not that much in them. So they're relatively simple to code, relatively simple to create, and relatively simple to manage. And one of the advantages they have, I think, is that simplicity. They have like incredibly established um, bureaucratic organizations that like manage them and control them. And two, We have spent so much time developing barcode infrastructure. People are so used to them that more advanced technologies like RFID don't just have to be better than barcodes. They have to be way, way better than barcodes to justify overturning billions of dollars in establishing barcode infrastructure, like millions of hours of training people how to use barcode infrastructure, And they simply just work for the most part. Like, they're a very successful technology in that most barcodes are easy to scan, whereas RFID is much more powerful, but it's also much more technologically complex and a lot more can go wrong. So it's kind of that old adage that if you keep something simple, there's not much that can screw up with it. Um, Wireless identification technologies... You can run into issues with radio waves don't pass well through water or metal or things like that, whereas barcodes, it's just the same, basically the same type of laser and the same patterns of lines and spaces that people were using in the 70s, you can still use today. And so to get rid of them, to replace them, and lots of people have predicted they were going to get replaced, die and things like that. so my last chapter is called misplaced eulogies and it documents like four moments in history where people like were like well this is going to be the barcode killer and it hasn't happened and i think it's just a combination of barcodes are pretty simple and work and we're very used to them so replacing everything we've built to support these global barcode structures is going to take a lot of work and for it to be worth it It's going to have to be something that is a lot, lot better than the barcode. And at least as of yet, nothing has come around, which is why we're still buying groceries with a 50-year-old technology.
0: If it's not broke, don't fix it, right? Yep. It's still doing what it needs to.
1: Yep. And it would cost a lot of money to replace it. And so people aren't that excited to spend money or train (laughs) people for new things.
0: Right. Um. Now, we've, I've been asking you about the barcode and you've been helping us understand sort of what it is and how it works with the implicit assumption that what it looks like, even with all the different kinds, the kind of basic one, the one that we all see at the grocery store, um, isn't something to ask about in and of itself. And of course, this is completely wrong because as you document in the book, the fact that it is linear with little black and white lines and a little rectangle was not inevitable. So how and why did barcodes come to look like the these barcodes that we've been mainly talking about?
1: Yeah, that's a fantastic question. And that was one of my favorite things that I found when I dove into the archives was, yeah, as I mentioned, as a 40-year-old, like barcodes are just barcodes, right? Like they're black lines on pieces of paper.
0: I mean, but even a barcode. Wh- as it right like bar code it, it implies that that's what it must be
1: yep and actually a barcode is just series of lines and spaces that contain numbers it doesn't have to be in any specific shape at all it doesn't have to be the black lines in order on a like white background or anything like that. And the lines also don't even have to be black, but it doesn't have to be that. It just has to be series of lines and spaces and it can really be in any shape. So the first barcode that was ever invented was patented in 1949 by uh, Joseph Woodland and Bernard Silver. And it is, if you look back at that patent, it is completely unrecognizable to us today as a barcode. It's in the shape of a bullseye. So instead of the lines and spaces being this vertical, like horizontal spread, they were concentric circles and the spaces between the circles are what dictated the data. And when The grocery industry in the US, which was the first one that really um, pushed the barcode and officially adopted it, there'd been a try in the railroad industry that failed before that, which is why it's kind of just a footnote. But when the grocery industry decided they wanted to use barcodes and they wanted to adopt barcodes, they created something called the Ad Hoc Committee, which really made decisions that are still being felt today about how barcodes would work. And the ad hoc committee had three major responsibilities. The first was just deciding, are barcodes something that we should do? They decided yes. Then they had to come up with the data standard, which is really key to all this, because just like with any technology, like it's not just about the technology. There's all these documents and all these data standards and requirements behind it that make all this work. But then the final thing they had to decide was which barcode they were going to use. And there were, they came down to a bunch of finalists. And most of those finalists, if you looked at um, with no context, you would have no idea they are a barcode. But the two finalists, the two final ones that they were focusing on, and the decision came down to the last day of the committee. So this is how close we were to ending up with barcodes that look completely different were the IBM barcode, which is what we ended up with. So that's the UPC or EAM barcode, which also looks like Code 39 and all these other barcodes, and the RCA bullseye barcode, um, which, as I said before, was based on like concentric circles that went out and based on that original patent. And so they came down to the last day deciding between The IBM barcode, which has now become one of the defining symbols of capitalism and people have tattoos of it and it's all over sci-fi and bullseyes. And we came within a couple of votes within that last day of this committee that had been meeting for three years of ending up with a bullseye barcode. And at the time it was actually a really controversial opinion because RCA was very mad that theirs was not um, selected and threatened to pull out of the barcode um, business altogether. So, yeah, barcodes are kind of this taken-for-granted technology, and once something becomes so taken-for-granted, it feels inevitable. So to look back on like the history and the meeting notes of the ad hoc committee, it's kind of remarkable to realize how close we came to ending up with something completely different, to having bullseyes all over our products and our tickets and things like that and it really did come down to that last day of that committee and it was a controversial choice and we could have ended up with something completely different
0: the beauty of archives and what you find in them very much from that um bit of information what else did the ad hoc committee do what were some of its other key decisions that impact us still
1: So one of the key decisions um, was they decided that the data standard, which was the universal product code, which is why they're called the UPC barcode. um, And just as a note, um, Europe, a couple years later, did the international article number barcode. It's kind of the same process. Um, But they decided that the standard had to be separate from the symbol. That was a thing that they decided early on. So they decided upon the standard, which is what each one of those numbers mean in a barcode, um, and then they decided on the symbol. But what each one of those numbers mean is really important because that has to be tightly controlled for it to work. And maybe the most important decision they made was to keep it simple. So as I mentioned before, there were talk in that meetings that barcodes were going to contain all this data, like expiration dates, um, prices were going to actually be in the barcode and things like that, which in my opinion, if they had gone with that and there was discussion of it probably would have killed the barcode in its tracks because it would have all of a sudden become a really technical process, but they instead decided to go with the real simple process of it's just going to be an identification number and all the other important information is going to be stored in a database elsewhere, which is how still to this day, most UPC barcodes work. When you scan it, you're not scanning it to like actually pull information off of it besides just an ID number that like tells you what this thing is and then the data about it is stored elsewhere. And also they set up the standard that tells you what each one of those numbers are. So. That's another really important thing that is really tightly controlled to this day by um, a global committee that controls barcodes. So if you look at a barcode and you see the numbers that are printed on the bottom, if you know what you're looking for, you can have an idea of kind of what those numbers are saying because they're very standardized. And um, the UPC committee, like the universal product code, is a really tight standard that basically has allowed grocery stores and then it spread into retail and they developed other standards. Like there's all kinds of standards for different products, but what each one of those numbers means and how they have to be tightly controlled so that they will work in any grocery store and that they're required, right? Because one of the risks was if they adopt barcodes without a standards and different grocery stores adopt different barcodes, then like it's just too expensive and none of this is going to work. So they set up a very defined standard of what each one of those numbers means. Like if you look at the first digit in a barcode, that will tell you what country that comes from. And then what the next numbers mean, then it will tell you like what the company is, then it will tell you the product class, then there will be a check digit. And they set up standards for all of that, which were then emulated by other industries that developed their own standards, and then created global organizations that tightly control how all this works. And all that really goes back to meetings of a bunch of grocery executives in like, the 1970s none of whom from reading archival notes had any idea that they were doing anything this important like that was another fun thing like they all thought they were doing something important none of them based on anything i found would have imagined that you would be talking to me on a podcast about barcodes more than 50 years later and that this would still be a thing but yeah, they set up the number standards, they chose the symbol, and while other industries use different symbols, other industries use different numbering standards, most of them are based on those decisions made by a bunch of grocery executives in the early 1970s in random boardrooms. So bureaucracy, hey? Like <laughs> bureaucracy and bureaucracy and meeting minutes sometimes can tell you a whole lot about how like the world ends up getting shaped in ways people probably never realized at the time
0: and that's exactly one of the things my own research looks at in a completely different realm and so it remains very very true whether you're talking about barcodes or peace treaties. so fascinating to get a little bit of an insight into those boardrooms um i'd love to pull on a thread you briefly mentioned earlier, the idea that some of these decisions uh, were controversial, that the barcode has faced some opposition later in its life as well. What are some of the controversies and pushback that barcodes faced after these decisions were made and it was launched into the world? And then why do you think that the barcodes weren't taken down?
1: Yeah, so... I had had no idea that anyone had ever cared about barcodes as like a controversial technology until I started my research. And actually in the 1970s in the US, they were extremely controversial. They led to national protests and boycotts and Senate hearings and state legislature hearings. Consumer groups came pretty close to stopping barcodes in their tracks. And part of the problem was Um, reading Stephen Brown's really fantastic history of the Ad Hoc Committee, he was actually on the Ad Hoc Committee, um, the Ad Hoc Committee consulted with a ton of different groups involved in barcodes. So they consulted with grocery store owners, with retailers, with um, packagers, with printers who actually had to print these things. But one group they did not consult with very much was consumers. And part of the reason was that Just no one on the committee thought consumers would care, right? But when the barcode was released in 1974, protests began almost immediately from consumer groups against barcodes. Led, in part, and it's one of those things where, like, it's impossible to kind of tell how things would have been different. But it is possible, like, if it was not for a woman named Carol Tucker Foreman, these protest might not have gone anywhere. But Carol Tucker Foreman was the head of the Consumer Federation of America in 1974. And she was someone who um, the ad hoc committee members later would con- refer to as a formidable adversary they were unprepared for. And she immediately went on like a nationwide tour to warn consumers about barcodes, to protest barcodes. Um, Within a month of the release of the first barcode, she went on the Phil Donahue show. I don't know if you remember that show, but it was on when I was a kid. Phil Donahue show to warn consumers that the grocery industry was trying to rip them off and things like that. And it became this huge controversy. And what's particularly interesting, like looking back from 2023, um, as someone my age who grew up with barcodes is it's a controversy that like feels kind of abstract because it's a bit hard even now for me to wrap my head around. But most of the controversy focused on this thing called item level pricing, which was that before barcodes, price tags were all attached to individual items. So if you were at a grocery store, a can of soup would have a price tag on it. Um, A box of mac and cheese would have a price tag on it. And part of the reason the grocery store wanted to introduce barcodes was to get rid of that because that cost a ton in labor. And they wanted to replace it with shelf pricing, which is the only kind of pricing I've ever known, right? Like when you go to a grocery store, there's a price on the shelf for the products and yeah, it's fine. But in the 1970s, it was a huge deal. And so she led these protests being like, we can't get rid of item pricing like, and replace them with barcodes. Like if you're going to do barcodes, you have to keep item level pricing. Um, She argued that without individual item pricing, consumers would lose their agency, we'd lose financial transparency, all kinds of things. And she was an incredibly forceful figure. She did a national tour debating grocery industry executives and Like It got tons of national coverage, all this controversy about barcodes. And keep in mind, this is like the mid-70s. This is before most people had ever seen a barcode because they were slow to take off in part because of these consumer protests. And um, at one point, the grocery industry was like, well, here's a compromise. We'll give you grease pencils and you can write the prices on the thing so it won't be that bad. And she gave this furious interview about how that was the equivalent of the grocery industry telling people, let the meat cake. So pulling a full Mary Antoinette on that. And so item level pricing became this huge sticking point where like people were protesting it. She was leading these protests and like they were winning and it, the grocery industry was not expecting it at all. And They began to push for legislation to maintain item level pricing. So sure, you could do barcodes, but you also had to tag every item with price tags. And you had consumer groups being like, well, the fact they won't compromise on that is ridiculous. It just shows they don't care. But the reason this was really important for the barcode's history in the 1970s was it was not a little issue because barcode systems cost a ton of money to implement like roughly $250,000 per grocery store between the training, between the systems and things like that. And so the only way they were financially viable was for them to get rid of item level pricing and replace it with shelf level pricing. So they became pretty terrified of her and they began doing their own PR pushback. um, Even as consumer groups began handing out pamphlets about like the great supermarket ripoff was a 1976 pamphlet I found. And there were editorials like, you'll never know the price of your item till you check out, which wasn't really true, but whatever. That was like the rhetoric. And it became this kind of existential threat because as they began pushing for legislate, legislation at the state level and the federal level to maintain item level pricing, if that had passed, they just wouldn't have been able to go forward with barcodes. Because you wouldn't have been able to save on the retail labor, right? So in a few states, they actually did get legislation passed um, temporarily. Michigan actually had a weird law that like stayed on the books till 2011, but I'm not sure if that actually stayed. But they never got federal legislation passed. And... By the late 1970s, these protests have been like so successful that you had some grocery industries giving anonymous quotes that they had lost faith in the barcode and they were thinking of abandoning it because it was just too controversial. And if they had to keep item level pricing, it was just not financially viable. So it's this kind of weird controversy where I'm sure there were reasons people really cared in the 1970s. Like I don't mean to like downplay the controversy at all, but it is a controversy that for someone who grew up with shelf level pricing, like it is a little hard to wrap your head around like why people cared so much because I've just never known item level pricing. You know what I mean? But it really did. It was the greatest threat the barcode ever faced. And it was led by a woman who is really important and very successful and very powerful. And it's impossible to tell like how exactly the controversy went away in my book. Like I talk about possibly like, as they finally started going into grocery stores, much slower than people expected by the late seventies in part because of these protests, maybe people got used to it, but also not to like attribute too much agency to one individual person um, Carol Tucker Foreman became the U.S. secretary, U.S. Assistant Secretary of Agriculture in 1977, which is around when the national coverage started dying down. So it's also possible that they lucked into her getting a different job because she really was the face of this. She was all over the place fighting this. Um, And then there were also controversies about retail, because barcodes do automate some forms of retail, like the retail clerk union, um, protested them because it meant the loss of retail jobs. But because this is US and because of when it happened in the 1970s, labor had already started to kind of lose some of their power. That was never, that never got nearly as much attention as the consumer protests. But there were like, labor protests and then there were labor protests later in the 90s when the u.s postal service um, introduced barcode sorting systems and eliminated hun- hundreds of thousands of jobs um, so yeah there' this thing that from my perspective i could never have imagined anyone caring about actually was extremely controversial throughout the 1970s and then popped up again in the 1990s and controversial to the point where if a few pieces of legislation that were being considered have been passed, I don't know that we would have barcodes today.
0: Which would be very strange. Um, it was
1: very strange. I yeah, don't, no. Yeah.
0: Thank you for taking us through those controversies. Because as you said, thinking it from today's perspective, you're like, hang on, what?
1: Yeah. And then you also had like, minor controversies pop up every once in a while like um i saw some articles in britain like occasionally someone would code something wrong so you'd have these stories i think in like the late 80s early 90s when barcodes were starting to get big in like the uk where someone would scan a barcode and like a one dollar thing would show up as a hundred dollars and then that would be like a front page story on the sun that, like, the news. Now, those were like more minor controversies. And also, that's not actually a barcode issue. That's someone entering something into a database wrong, right? And almost certainly, like, not intentional. But you'd also have like minor blips of controversies, like, of someone just entering data wrong, which those were never as impactful. And also, like, let's be honest, consume, like, people typing in prices by hand can type them in wrong too. And barcodes are far more accurate than someone typing each price. But you'd also have minor ones like that. But the big ones were the consumer protests about item level pricing um, and things like that in the 1970s in the US that really came close to like actual like legislation. like there was a. US Senate hearing that Carol Tucker Foreman um, was one of the lead witnesses on about the possibility of federal protections of item pricing. And that might have killed the barcode before really it even like started.
0: Given that background then, given that bit of history, it's even more surprising that from the 1970s by 1992, by the presidential election then, if we're staying at the federal political level, um, there's actually a great instance you talk about in the book of even in just that short space of time, barcodes going from, you know, a few bits of legislation away from not existing at all to being so invisible that they cause an incident in the presidential election? Yeah. What happened here?
1: So, yeah. um, So that legislation, it might have still worked or barcodes might have still worked, but it's possible it's not because what happened with barcodes was by the 80s, they had begun to pick up in the grocery industry after like disaster in the seventies, like people just weren't adopting them. And then also in the early eighties, based on the grocery store model, they were adopted by like the department of defense, by the automotive industry and slowly spread into logistics, into like shipping and stuff like that throughout the eighties. But by the eighties, they began to like grow exponentially in the U S. So by The late 80s, more than 50% of grocery stores were using barcodes, which was just a massive increase from a decade before. And in my book, I talk about like when barcodes became like mundane. And like there's all kinds of things you can point to. You can point to statistics or whatever. But I actually use the 1992 presidential election to kind of make the case that like at least in the US, that was kind of when they became like a sign of just everyday America. And what happened? which is actually really interesting. And for people who are a little older, they might actually remember this, was the 1992 election was um, George Bush Sr. versus Bill Clinton versus Ross Perot running as a third party candidate. Um, And Bush Sr. at the time for the dynamics of the election, it was almost hard to find Democrats to run against him like in the primary, because post Gulf War, about a year and a half before the election, he had like a 90% approval rating. He had one of the highest approval ratings of any president ever. But his approval rating had begun to drop. And there was a fateful event in February 1992, where George Bush Sr. went to a grocery store convention. And there was only one reporter there covering the convention because it was a grocery store convention. And I can't imagine many people want to cover a grocery store convention. And there was a front page story the next day on the New York Times by Andrew Rosenthal describing a situation where someone had shown George Bush a barcode and he told them he was amazed by the technology and in wonder of it. And it talks about a look of wonder flickering across his face that he'd been shown a barcode in 1992. And that was on the front page of the New York Times. And that story then blew up from there and became kind of the symbol of George Bush being out of touch with regular America. Because... This same technology that in 1979 had been so controversial, by 1992, reporters and democratic operatives were using as, oh, George Bush doesn't even know what a barcode is. Like, he's not a real American. He doesn't understand the plight of like regular Americans, because by then barcodes were kind of everywhere. And the idea that you wouldn't know how to use one was so shocking to people and such a sign of like out of touch elitism that it became a major political attack on him that lasted throughout the election. Um, James Carville wrote a postmortem of the election about how Bush was not able to connect with the people. And that's why he lost. And the main example he gave was that he didn't know what a barcode was. And shockingly, lost that election in 1992. It kept going. In 2011, CNN had an article for biggest presidential gaffes, and they listed Bush in the barcode as like number one, because it was a symbol that he just didn't understand America, he didn't know what a barcode was. And the New York Times in their obituary for Bush, which I believe was in 2018, even mentioned that barcode story as a kind of symbol of his struggles for connecting with the American people. So The two things I think that are most interesting and illustrative about that are in terms of the barcode, that this technology that in 1979 grocery industry representatives were like giving interviews that they'd lost faith in it because of consumer concerns and protests and were thinking of abandoning it, 13 short years later, not knowing what a barcode is and being amazed by it became like a kiss of death for a president as being too out of touch with the American people. Like Hillary Clinton gave an interview and was like, we need a president who understands the technology we use in grocery stores. So in just like over a decade, it had become like just this big symbol of like everyday American life. And it was an interesting confluence of not just the barcode as becoming kind of mundane that quickly, but also like the narratives around Bush as he'd already establish a narrative as kind of elite and out of touch because he's from a rich northeastern family he had been in washington forever he was head of the cia then he was vice president for eight years he was president like if we're being honest he probably hadn't grocery shopped in like 20 years because why would he Um, so that narrative about him along with like the increasing like mundanity and acceptance of the barcode became this huge political story that would not die. And what was super interesting when I looked into it is that that story, which I had grown up as a kid knowing, like it was such a big story that I even remember it from when I was like nine years old. That story is like mostly fake. Like it's kind of just a, it's, Stretching the truth to the point where it's stretched so far that it's a borderline lie, because what actually happened was Bush went to this grocery convention and someone showed him a new barcode technology that had not even been released on the market, which was able to take a torn up barcode and scan it even after, after it had been torn up. And that's what Bush was looking at when he said that this was amazing technology and had a look of wonder across his face. So he was right to say it was amazing. Like it wasn't even released yet. That is kind of remarkable. Like you could read a torn up barcode, but Rosenthal, when he published his first front page story, who was not the reporter at the event, he just took it from a one paragraph pool report from a different reporter. Rosenthal didn't know that and didn't note that. And then it just kept getting picked up by paper after paper without noting the fact that Bush was not talking about an actual normal barcode. He was talking about this like cutting edge, like identification technology. Right. And even as his people realized within a week of the story that this was going to be a major problem and they started doing interviews, his press secretary gave um, a press conference explaining the whole situation, all of that. It didn't matter like the narrative was set and it just kept going. And like I said, it's something that plagued him up until his death. Like it made it into his obituary that because he didn't know what this barcode was, um, that he was out of touch with the American public, which one wasn't true because that was not what actually happened. But two, I think is even more than any kind of statistic I could throw, the fact that by 1992, the narrative was that if you didn't know what a barcode was like, you simply just didn't shop is a kind of remarkable turnaround from a technology that had been highly controversial, had led to national boycotts and it almost failed a little over a decade earlier. So it was really like kind of that quick, at least in the U S it was different in other places, but at least in the U S that it made that turn that quickly that it became a huge part of a presidential election where it was just a narrative that wouldn't die and followed George Bush senior, like literally into his New York times obituary 30 years later.
0: That is pretty intense. It Um, is
1: pretty intense.
0: (laughs) Yes. And, and definitely um, makes the point about the ubiquity of barcodes Um, on the point of intensity. Object Lessons, for anyone who's not aware of what these books look like, they're quite cute and small. Um, I don't have particularly big hands, but they sort of fit in the palm of my hand quite nicely. Um, These are not the books necessarily where one would open a chapter and go, oh, there's a biblical quotation staring at me in the middle of this book. Why does chapter six start with a biblical quote?
1: So yeah, I also am not the type of writer who ever thought I would be starting a chapter with a biblical quotation. But that particular biblical quotation is from the book of Revelations or book of Revelation. And it's two sentences in the book of Revelation um, that describe what later became known as the mark of the beast. And the mark of the beast is essentially the mark that when the beast rises and the Antichrist like comes to earth, um, which is all this apocalyptic stuff, because the book of Revelation, I don't know if you've ever read it. I've actually had to read it a bunch of times for my work. Is it totally weird? I
0: not, I admit.
1: It is a totally bizarre book and completely different than every book in the Bible. Like it is a wild book. And it's just all this apocalyptic imagery of a beast rising from the ocean and um, the Antichrist rising and all this other stuff. And one of the things in it, because the passages and he, so the beast, causeth all both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads, and that no man might buy or sell, save that he had the mark, or the name of the beast, or the number of his name. So it's just that. It's just these two sentences. But those two sentences later became known as the mark of the beast, which has become one of the most enduring pieces of biblical imagery, especially apocalyptic biblical imagery. And essentially, the way it's interpreted is when the beast rises and when the Antichrist recruits his followers, his followers will take a mark. So on their right hand their forehead or whatever, Um, and then they will need that mark to buy or sell. So they will not be able to make transactions without that mark. And when God comes down, the people who have that mark, things are not going to end up well for them when everyone else is raptured. So that's the mark of the beast, right? Now, what does that have to do with barcodes? Well, in the late 70s, and then especially in this book by this evangelical author named Mary Ralph, she wrote a book claiming that barcodes themselves were the mark of the beast, that this was all a global conspiracy to get people to buy barcodes and get them used to this identification technology that eventually would replace cash, would replace like currency, and that taking the barcode was the mark. And it actually had begun even earlier, like I found um, ads for sermons in like mid-1970s, like papers, well before most people had ever seen a barcode being, warning them that the barcode might be the mark of the beast. And... There were boycotts from evangelical communities um, and things like that, warning people that if they shop at stores with barcodes, that they are essentially like taking the mark of the antichrist, that yeah, all of that. And barcodes weren't the first technology, nor will they be the last, like RFID is another one that people have decided is the mark of the beast, but it became, they're the ones that have lasted the longest, right? So it became a thing where barcodes in some niche um, evangelical groups became essentially the work of the devil, that this ad hoc committee of kind of boring grocery executives were actually leading this global conspiracy to get people to start using these barcodes that would become the mark with the eventual goal, according to Marie Velf, of eventually tattooing barcodes onto hands so that then... There would be no more cash and every purchase would have to be made through like barcode tattoos or anything like that. So it became hugely controversial. Um, And I have one letter to the editor. I'm just going to read really quick that is short, but like just to put this in perspective, um, and this is from a letter to the editor I found in a Cedar Rapids, Iowa paper where a guy wrote in and he wrote, while pastors, lay people, and concerned people picket against the evils of pornography, a greater evil is spreading across our land. Behold, Cedar Rapids, you are becoming the birthplace of the mark of the beast, the UPC system. And I will fully admit, as an objective researcher, I laughed out loud in a silent archive at the idea of someone saying, of, an evangelical arguing that the barcode was worse than pornography, but um, that kind of thing was all over the place. Um, And part of the reason it popped up, interestingly, going back to one of your earlier questions of how a barcode works, part of the reason it popped up was because of Marie Ralph and a technologically technological illiteracy issue. So as I mentioned before, Barcodes have 15 pairs of lines, but three of those pairs are just guard bars. They don't have any data in them. They're just to orient the reader. They're the three longer ones that are on the sides in the middle. She looked at the barcode and in what she describes as a moment of divine inspiration from God, she decided that those three um, guard bars all represented the number six. So that secretly... The grocery store had it embedded 666 in every single barcode you used in the US or Europe as a way for you, when you're purchasing a project product, to essentially engage with 666, the number of the devil, right? And so this became a thing of people warning people not to use them. There were all kinds of books written about um, barcodes as a secret plot by the Antichrist. And it still kind of survives to this day. So in part, it's been replaced by like concerns about RFID or biometric implants and things like that. But even to this day, when Joseph Woodland, um, the father of the barcode, one of the two men on the original patent, when he died in 2012 the comment sections on his eulogy were just filled with like kind of vile comments about how he was like working for the devil and how he'd introduce the mark and he'd introduce 666 into like american society and all of that so even that has not fully disappeared but yeah barcodes sign of the antichrist so that same barcode that i have used to buy countless products and never thought about to some communities represent something much deeper, something like quite literally apocalyptic, which I think is just a really interesting example of kind of the malleability of cultural imaginations of technologies, right? That like, you never know, like certain groups, these technologies, even ones that seems so mundane to so many of us can take on these like much deeper meaning based on these like kind of advanced literacies of biblical texts of like what the mark means that to most of us just seems almost like a foreign language. And so, yeah, I have a chapter on the mark of the beast and tracing that history and kind of the impacts of it. And it never really like threatened the barcode, but it is something that still endures. You can still find, websites today that talk about the barcode as the market of beast and most of them still use uh marie ralph's thing of misreading the guard bars as each being a six and a bunch of grocery executives embedding 666 in every product you buy
0: i admit i was not expecting that chapter when i opened this book (laughs) but it was fascinating to read about
1: Yeah, I was not expecting to have to go back and read Book of Revelations when I started doing this research, but it was a fun read. And it is wild, too, because if you read it like all the Mark of the Beast stuff, it comes from two sentences in the entire Bible, which makes it kind of extra like, wow, that that's an impactful two sentences that people are protesting like infrastructure technologies 2000 years later because of them.
0: Yeah, really. Um, all right. Moving on from the Book of Revelations, um, I wanted to ask you about something that I was expecting you to talk about in the book, and sure enough, you do. Uh, the idea that perhaps even if RFID tags have not overtaken barcodes, that there is a looming replacement to the barcode on the horizon, and um, the one that, especially in the West, we've gotten increasingly familiar with over the lockdowns for the pandemic, QR codes. And yet, reading your book, QR codes cannot replace barcodes. Why not?
1: Yeah, so QR codes, because there are lots of articles that are like QR codes are going to replace barcodes soon and things like that. Um, But yeah, I mean, the primary reason like, it's impossible is because QR codes are barcodes. Like they just are. As I um, mentioned earlier, the two main categories of barcodes are linear barcodes. So like, the lines in order. And then 2D barcodes, so matrix barcodes, which um can contain way more data because it's being read in different directions. And QR codes are just a form of 2D barcodes or matrix barcodes. And so QR codes fundamentally are barcodes. Like they have different standards dictating what the um spaces and like the lines mean, but they work on fundamentally the same principle. It's just that they contain more data because they're far more data dense and the data can be read in different directions. Um, But yeah, so QR codes are barcodes. And also QR codes are far from the only 2D barcode. So QR codes are just one of many types of 2D barcodes. So next time you board a plane, for example, if you have a mobile boarding pass, you're going to have a 2D barcode. And that 2D barcode might be a QR code, but it also might be a data matrix code. There are a whole lot of different, like um, 2D barcodes. So, yeah, part of the reason they can't replace barcodes is one, they are barcodes. And two, like they do have advantages over older forms of barcodes in the sense that they can contain way more data, like I said. And in the 90s, there was a whole bunch of articles in the barcode industry about how. Um, the 2D wave was going to replace linear barcodes because they were more powerful. Because that's another thing about QR codes. People talk about QR codes like it's this new technology. QR codes are from 1994. They were invented by the Japanese automotive industry and they were one of many um, 2D barcodes, many of which still invented and began being invented in like 1989. But in the 90s, people began predicting that they were going to replace them because they can just like do more. Like, whereas a UPC code, you can fit 12 numbers, you can fit a lot more on a QR code. But a QR code still is functionally a barcode. And part of the reason that like QR codes have taken off is because QR codes, while they're a barcode, their biggest impact, I think at least so far, has been in an interestingly different way in that unlike barcodes, which are like really a Im- data infrastructure, that we interact with very little, except to maybe scan at self checkout lines. One of the main uses of QR codes is for like actual people to access information, right? Like we use them, so we think about them more. So they become kind of a bridge between smartphones and other information. And QR codes themselves, just like the barcode. Um, in more traditional, like, linear forms, they have a super interesting history as well. So I have a chapter on QR codes where QR codes, they're from 1994. And I don't know if you remember, but in, like, the mid-2000s, they started getting hyped as, like, the future of everything. Like, there were all these articles, like, the future of marketing. And I remember QR codes were, like, showing up on newspapers. And I remember when I started as a PhD student in 2008, a professor who was maybe trying a little too hard to be cool, had like QR codes on the syllabus. Um, and so they were hyped huge in the mid 2000s. And then they died so hard that they became a literal joke because they became a stand in for technologies that nobody wanted that were pushed on us. Um, because, If you remember pre-COVID, QR codes had mostly disappeared, except in a few cases in the West. It's different in China, especially. I'll get to that in a second. But um, they went from this super hype technology, this new form of 2D barcode that people were going to read on their phones everywhere, to being like jokes in stand-up comedy jokes on late night show there's this great book called qr codes kill kittens from like 2013 and it's a book that documents some of the absolute most bizarre ways companies tried to use qr codes that were all way worse than just doing a google search and so by like 2013 14 there were countless articles, some of which I cite in my book, declaring that the QR code was dead and that the QR code was now the stand in for technologies that are pushed on us that no one's ever going to use, right? And then they came roaring back in the COVID pandemic. But as a quick aside, like all the eulogies for QR codes being dead, those are all like very Western centric. Because even as QR codes had become a joke in the US, they had become like an absolute essential backbone of like the Chinese microfinancial system. So in China, um, they're part of one of their major um, social media apps is basically how people like exchange money. And so they're everywhere in China. So even as they were being cl- declared dead in the US, they were like absolutely exploding in East Asia and some other parts of the world. But in the West, they came roaring back during COVID. Like, I'm sure you noticed that now they seem to kind of be everywhere. You see commercials with them with asking you to scan a QR code. They began popping up on menus. They began being used for um, COVID, like, contact tracing protocols. And really, it took, like, a global pandemic for them to come back and it wasn't just the global pandemic. It was also that um, Apple and Android made it so that the camera app could scan QR codes without using a separate app. But what was really interesting to me when I was like looking at that history is part of what led to like the explosion of QR codes during the COVID pandemic was a misunderstanding of COVID from the earliest days of the pandemic that kind of refused to die. And that was the whole COVID spreads through contact. So I don't know if you remember like the first months of the pandemic when like our messaging was like, wash your hands 10 times a day, like don't touch anything, all that stuff. Like I remember trying to find hand sanitizer in the town I live in and it was sold out everywhere. And by early summer, it turned out that scientists had realized like that probably wasn't true that it was airborne or spread through saliva and that it was not spread through touch, shaking hands or touching a menu was a very unlikely way you were going to get COVID. However, that had still stuck in people's head. So you still had it and it just wouldn't go away. So you had menus being replaced. You had business cards being replaced. You had QR codes essentially like thriving in this new touchless society, even after the scientific consensus was that the touchless society was kind of a early understanding of how covid spread that was later disproven. And from there, people have gotten more and more used to them and companies have become less and less silly in how they use them. And so from 2020 to 2021, I think the per the number of barcode QR codes that were scanned jumped by more than 25% which is a pretty remarkable like number for any technology, but it's an especially remarkable jump for a technology that was 30 years old at the time, right? Because QR codes are from 1994. They're not new. And so for a 1994 technology in the West, they had already thrived in like um, China. But in the West, for them to have like their huge jump almost three decades after they were... Um, first invented and first released is kind of remarkable. And it was this big confluence of factors of the focus on no touch. And then four places, unlike the U.S. that did contact tracing and required vaccine thing, vaccine um, confirmation, a lot of those arose because the more technologically advanced solution, like using Bluetooth to track locations of phones, raised privacy concerns that people protested against, so they moved to QR codes that people would scan because that was like a less invasive measure. So it was like all these things fell into place at once to have this kind of like rebirth and like this rise from the dead of a technology that had failed so hard that people were writing books about how ridiculous it was in the mid-2010s.
0: And that story, I think, amongst all the other ones, um, really helps explain the comment you made right at the beginning of this interview of you thought maybe it would be an article and then actually you had to cut loads out because um, turns out barcodes have so much to talk about. Um, perhaps this is asking too difficult a question given that uh, what you've already told us on that point. But if you did get one more chapter to add for example or a few pages in addition if you could add one thing back in that you had to cut what would it be
1: so if i was writing this is not my one thing but if i was writing like a much longer book like a 350 page book i would have looked more like at the history in europe and japan which also like invented barcode standards even though eventually they were made to be all interoper- interoperable like i focused on the us and like the upc because that's what the space was for and it would have just got really messy but actually if i were to like i actually have two things that i would have loved to written write a chapter on one barcodes are actually a really essential piece in the history of patent trolls because there was this guy um who Arguably was either, depending on what you read, one of the great inventors of the 20th century or a complete scam artist. And he made millions of dollars off patents. He has the most patents in history, Um, but he never invented anything. So he just had all these patents and then just didn't like make anything. And, One of the things, his name was Jerome Lemelson. The patent lawsuits that ended up getting him the richest were, he started suing like Japanese companies and like some American companies that he had a patent for something that kind of described a thing like using barcodes to like scan things in an assembly line as they passed by. He never built this thing and... Let's just say it's pretty tenuous, the tie. But he ended up, like, settling with these companies for tens of millions of dollars. Or, no, over $100 million in the 1990s. He settled for all these companies for suing them related to these, like, barcode systems used in, like, assembly lines. And after his death, actually, those cases were overturned, right? But, so barcodes, like, really, he was... Arguably, like the ur text for patent trolls. And his biggest thing was suing company over barcodes in the 1990s and these like systems that are kind of similar to something he might have patented in the 50s. Who knows? So I would have written a chapter like on, yeah, barcodes and that history of patent trolls. And then the other one, which I briefly mention in the book, like in the final chapter, but like I can't get into it. Is there was this really interesting case of this activist group, recode.com, starting a war against Walmart where they were letting people print barcodes because barcodes were never meant to be secure. Like I said, they're just identification numbers that pull up records in a database. So they started printing the bar letting people print barcodes to cheap items that they could then stick to expensive items and scan them at Walmart and the cheap items would show up. And they had this website. They were an art collective. They like started this big fight with, Barca, with Walmart and they lost horribly. Like Walmart threatened to sue the hell out of them and like got it taken down. But it was just this really interesting kind of like side note in barcode history of just like this... Our activist group, like exposing the design of barcodes, which was intentional but was never meant to be secure, as a way to like kind of empower consumers and start a war with like the world's largest corporation, right? So those are two things that I wish I could have spent more time on because I think that's just an absolutely wild story um, that doesn't have a happy ending and didn't last long. Like Walmart put all their power to getting them shut down but i do think yeah the patent troll and an art collective trying to use barcodes to go to war with walmart um those would be like two that i absolutely like wish i would have covered
0: so clearly there is more material on barcodes is that what you're working on next a sequel
1: um I'm not working on a sequel necessarily to this book, but I do think I might turn some things into like more public facing articles because I'm trying to write more for the public. So I have a chapter on like um, the cultural imaginations of barcodes. So like barcodes and dystopian science fiction. I'm working on an article in that, which is in the book, barcodes and tattoos. Like there's all these interesting barcodes and in architecture. People have built barcodes buildings based on our barcodes so i am like kind of working on now that with more space going into more depth on all those things because while i have a full chapter on it like there's a lot to cover in those chapters so that's one thing i'm working on um and i'm also working on like studying this other kind of forgotten infrastructure the at&t like microwave relay network which was this Hugely important like Cold War infrastructure that went through 1950 to 1980s and some of the towers still stand even though they haven't been operational and I've actually done field work to visit them and I'm really interested in like what I'm calling like infrastructural ghosts. These like communication infrastructures that people don't even remember what they were, that they were important, that are still standing kind of as ruins in our landscape that just no one even remembers what they were. So yeah, I'm working on like different infrastructural projects and also, yeah, working on kind of expanding on some things and like writing for a public audience about some of the things that I do cover in the book.
0: Cool. Cool. All right. Well, all of that sounds very fun. Thank you for the preview. And of course, listeners can read the book we've been discussing titled Barcode. Um, It's just been published by Bloomsbury in 2023. It's part of the gorgeous object lesson series. Jordan, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast.
1: Thank you so much for having me and thank you for all the wonderful questions.